Good morning. My name's Todd Daly. I, uh, I'm let to preach up here once or twice a year to fill in when Randy is away on sabbatical, which happens to be this month. Uh, I teach theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary. Uh, I'm a seminary professor. Uh, let me get the commercial out of the way quickly. Uh, if you're interested in taking classes, please come talk to me later, or we have some staff out, uh, out in the, the lobby. You certainly don't have to be headed to professional ministry to take uh, classes. Anyway, I think we need to pray one more time, or at least I need to, so. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and ask that you would let us hear from you. Mindful of the fact that you are closest to those who are crushed in spirit. Let us hear from you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to talk about the Beatitudes, uh, and just last year I was up here talking about a Beatitude. You may have forgotten a couple of things in, in the interim, so uh, I'm going to do a little bit of review as we keep moving through them. Uh, and just a, a brief note, if you have an outline, Matthew 5, 9 is actually on page 810 and not 809. Well, you don't have to look too hard in the news these days to find examples of strife or discord or angry rhetoric and even physical altercations. This coming off the bloodiest century in world history. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we name a peace prize after the inventor of dynamite. But when parents come to fisticuffs in a youth baseball game of seven-year-olds after a 13-year-old umpire makes a questionable call, we're right to wonder whether or not we are witnessing the demise of civil society and of peace. Just a couple months ago, former Vice President Joe Biden was ridiculed and denounced by members of his own party for having the audacity to say that current Vice President Mike Pence is, and I quote, a decent guy. And there's hardly any shortage of incendiary messages coming from the other side of the aisle. Pick a topic, foreign policy, immigration, the environment, and things can get heated pretty quickly. Once again, maybe we shouldn't be surprised to find this in a culture that has forgotten God, has forgotten what it means to be human, and has forgotten what life is for. We even fight about the weather. Meteorologist Joe Crane probably should have known what was coming after he publicly criticized code red nomenclature on the air in response to viewer concerns. His rather benign and I think valid points led to his immediate release. Crane's firing led to an uproar of sorts. Several companies pulled their ads from the news station. People swore they'd never watch News Channel 20 ever again. Petitions were circulated. A Facebook page was created that not only called for Crane to be reinstated, but urged that the general manager step down or be fired. 
a rally was held demanding Joe's return. The crowd wore red, carrying signs like, pardon me here, hell no, we want Joe. Give me back my Joe. Joe is a beacon of light in an era of fake news. And my favorite, um, whether here or there, with a play on the word weather, Joe Crane is everywhere. <laughs> At least some people think Joe Crane is divine. But if we're honest, I think we like the idea of revenge. No one wants to see the Avengers reconcile with Thanos. Admittedly, I had to ask my daughter for some reference. I don't, about that, I don't understand any of that stuff at all. No one would want to watch Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, or Colonel Nathan Jessup, Jack Nicholson, in A Few Good Men, hug it out. I think now more than ever, we need to hear the Beatitudes and specifically Jesus' exhortation to be peacemakers. Once again, since it's been nearly an entire year, it might be helpful to just briefly review a couple of fundamental points. Since uh, the sermon and the Beatitudes in general have been some of the most misunderstood material in all of the New Testament. The Beatitudes introduced this ethical discourse known as the Sermon on the Mount. But historically and unfortunately, it's often been misunderstood. Some see Jesus giving a new set of more difficult, more intense rules, effectively making Jesus, in the words of one scholar, meaner than Moses. Others interpret this as a deliberately impossible ethical ideal that is meant primarily to expose our inability to follow Christ without grace. This was Martin Luther's take. And both misunderstandings stem from misreading the initial verses, the Beatitudes. So a couple of brief reminders. Uh, the first is that Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience, expecting the Messiah and his new kingdom. In the last couple verses of chapter 4, we see Jesus' public ministry growing. He's healing people. People are uh, flocking to him. But the key to this whole sermon actually hinges on how we read the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes themselves uh, help us recognize that Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom of God and what it looks like to be part of that kingdom. The word blessed is probably best translated as favored, favored by God. This kingdom is countercultural. It turns the world's understanding of favor upside down. It is a revolution beginning with the spiritual zeros, the hurting, the humbled, and the hungry. Blessed are those, favored are those who are spiritually poor. That could have hardly sounded more strange um, for those who had understood the New Testament and had it etched into their brains. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked. Counsel of the wicked. Uh, Psalm 119-1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk 
in the law of the Lord. Or Proverbs 3, happy the man who finds wisdom, or blessed the man who finds wisdom, and the one who gains understanding. God comes through Christ with an announcement of God's favor on the downtrodden. This means that we're not to try to become poor in spirit in order to, uh, or to mourn in order that we might become blessed, but rather we are blessed in these conditions because God's kingdom is here. It is here, however, it is not yet fully complete. Another point that is often overlooked. The kingdom is already, but also not yet. And the Beatitudes are actually framed with this emphasis. If you look at verse 3 and verse 10, you will notice that the blessings pronounced there are present tense. But all the future blessings in between are precisely that. They speak of uh, the future, the future of the kingdom. And finally, uh, and here we're adding something new, we we should note that there is a progression in these Beatitudes from uh, announcing the kingdom of those who are suffering to encouraging particular behaviors are marking out the kinds of activities uh, of those who belong to the kingdom. A progression from afflictions, if, if you will, to activities. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. And then one brief final observation. There's no hint anywhere in this sermon that this is meant only for the spiritually elite. We are all called to be pure. We are all called to be merciful and to be peacemakers and even to expect persecution for honoring God and doing the right thing. Okay, so uh, after that rather lengthy introduction, thanks for hanging uh, with me, uh, we're going to slow down a little bit and look just at this verse, 5-9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I don't, I don't even have a big idea this morning, rather just a couple of questions. Uh, what it means to be a peacemaker, and second, what difference Christ makes. But uh, in, in the first question, admittedly, I have four sub-points. And looking, looking it over this morning, it struck me that I really could have done that with three points. So um, I'm not going to tell you what point I would have eliminated. It's too late now. We're just going to plow through. Um, I, I don't think it'll be uh, too painful. But, but first, peacemaking is not mere passivity. This adjective peacemaker, which occurs only here in the New Testament, still speaks of an activity. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace lovers. Blessed are the passive. This does not mean, or being a peacemaker does not mean that we adapt this kind of chill, surfer dude mentality toward all strife and conflict. You know, like like your neighbor who wears socks with Birkenstocks and listens to the Grateful Dead. Like everything's just cool. Peace. Nor should peacemaking be confused with a peace at any price kind of principle. Peacemakers should not be confused with peacekeepers. Peacekeepers avoid conflict. 
at least visibly, by suppressing or internalizing things. This is an unhelpful kind of passivity. I'm deeply sympathetic, actually, to this kind of peacekeeper dynamic that just says, keep your head down, don't draw attention to yourself, don't ask for trouble. It's so much easier to sit on the sidelines than it is to walk into conflict. I mean, I would rather just take a baseball bat to a hornet's nest than to try to resolve conflict sometimes. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Maybe you've seen the social experiments on YouTube or uh, the television show, What Would You Do?, where there is a staged conflict, right? Someone's being bullied or berated or belittled, and uh, there's a camera rolling to see who will get involved, who will intervene. I like to think that I would be one of those people who would stand up for the marginalized. But most people just don't want to get involved. They do their best to ignore the situation because it's uncomfortable, and they usually walk away. But Eugene Kennedy has noted that this kind of passivity does not belong in the kingdom, for it is a kind of withdrawal from existence that paradoxically destroys peace. He insightfully notes, and I'm quoting here, peace is never really found by those who don't want to get hurt. Second, peacemaking identifies those who belong to the coming kingdom. His pronouncement of blessing to the peacemakers fits in with Jewish expectation of God's messianic kingdom, where shalom will reign. The prophet Zechariah said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this ultimate sense of peace, or what the Old Testament calls shalom, can only be fully accomplished when Christ returns. The arrival of this kingdom that is both here but not yet complete, nevertheless, calls us to engage in the risks of making peace. This identifies us as belonging to the kingdom. We get some hint of what this might look like by looking at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament completed sometime around 130 BC. This is, I'm sorry, this is a background detail about lexical work. Um, bear with me, we'll go through this very, very quickly. But in particular, Proverbs 10, 10 uses the verbal equivalent of this word peacemaker that we find Jesus using. He who winks the eye causes trouble, but he, note the language, who boldly reproves makes peace. That is not conflict avoidance. Though peacemaking might indeed involve reproving a brother or sister, Jesus gives us more particular instructions for what it means to be a peacemaker in the sermon itself, which is exceedingly helpful and leads to the third point, that peacemaking is an activity of love and nonviolent resistance. 
In the sermon, Jesus actually articulates the specific activities of peacemakers when he talks about anger over one's brother. This is verses 21 through 26. Or when he talks about this law of retribution known as lex talionis, otherwise known as an eye for an eye in verses 38 through 48. Rather than retribution, we are called to love our enemies. And there's a clear verbal clue in Matthew with Jesus' exhortation to love our enemies and to pray for our persecutors in order that we might be sons of our Father who is in heaven, repeating the language of this beatitude. This means negatively to harbor hatred or resentment or bitterness or contempt in one's heart towards someone is to be guilty of something which in the sight of God is equivalent to murder. It is difficult to make peace with another when there is war in our own heart. And in verse 38 and following, Jesus overturns this law of retribution. Don't strike back, offer your other cheek. Peacemakers resist violence. When someone insults you, whether it's a coworker, your spouse, or your children, don't shoot back with your own verbal assault but instead pray for them. Don't pray for them in front of them because that would also be perceived as an assault. But pray for them. Anybody can love a friend or nice people and those who flatter, but the real test of being a son or daughter of God is loving our enemies and those who have something against us. Note that peacemaking does not involve skillful negotiation or specialized skills in de-escalating tension. Though those things undoubtedly can be useful. But peacemakers are not appeasers. It doesn't necessarily involve finding a compromise where everyone is happy. It doesn't necessarily involve brokering a deal. In fact, I think this kind of peacemaking that Jesus is speaking of is often a one-sided affair. The, the New Testament scholar H.D. Betts, I think, has grasped the flavor and implications of peacemaking as described by Jesus. Jesus recognizes war, persecution, and injustice as part of the evil world, he says. Peacemaking is a means of involvement in the human predicament of war-like conditions, which speaks of our era, and implies assuming responsibility against all the odds, risking peacemaking out of a situation of powerlessness, and demonstrating the conviction that in the end, God's kingdom will prevail. This is an example of the already and the not yet of the kingdom. And there are very clear instructions for being agents of God's peace here. Not responding in kind when someone says something offensive. Positively taking some time to pray for the welfare of your enemies. And it's a question worth asking ourselves this morning. Uh, do we pray for those who irritate us? Do we pray for those who are hostile toward us? 
To do so, according to Jesus, is to be on the road to becoming a peacemaker. Positively, uh, we could also say um, prayer and uh, let me throw fasting in there occasionally as well, which Jesus addresses later. Negatively, do we resist using violent words? For Christians, the question is not whether, all things considered, Jesus calls us to peacemaking and nonviolence, but the question becomes how the mandate to live in love and peace in this day and age uh, is to function in the practical moral life today. And here, Jesus' words, I think, invite the larger question of war. Uh, that's a thorny question, and I want to say a little bit about that in light of what, what we have here in the Beatitudes. Pacifism or just war is uh, how I think we can frame this. Uh, and some of us must wonder, does this mean, are we supposed to be pacifists? This undoubtedly was the dominant theory in the early church and has gained more supporters recently. Uh, the other, the other uh, theory from a Christian perspective is uh, just war theory. And there are very smart people on both sides of this debate. Tertullian in the second century is an early defender of pacifism who in writing a commentary about Jesus and Peter in the garden uh, said this effectively, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, when Jesus disarmed Peter after he sliced off the servant's ear, he thereby disarmed any future soldier. A lot of rhetorical flourish there. But for pacifists, the question is not whether or not nonviolent resistance will be effective, but whether or not we're being faithful to the gospel. Just war thinkers, however, see Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount as applying primarily to interpersonal relationships and not to international relationships. There will also be an appeal to uh, Romans chapter 13. Uh, Ambrose and Augustine took up this position that was later defended by Luther and Calvin. Uh, there is another commentary on the events in the Garden of Gethsemane here. After Jesus, again, has sliced off the servant's ear, uh, Augustine sees this not as disbanding or dis, um, of uh, un, un... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Augustine will say it this way. It's okay to use violence to serve peace if we are condoned by God. What happened in the garden here is that Peter was not condoned to pursue violence. So just war thinkers have a strong theological position on their side as well. Uh, so what, what can we say about these two options? Uh, they lie on a spectrum. Uh, they are both defensible. And this is my, <laughs> this is my best attempt to, be, uh, to offer a peaceable response to a very thorny issue. If you want to ask me about that later, I'm happy, I'm happy to speak more of it. But it does not necessarily entail that as a country we must be pacifists. Jesus calls us to active non-resistance. Christians don't find that point terribly controversial. 
What is controversial is how we go about pursuing that in everyday life. And that debate will not be resolved till Christ comes again. Okay, I'm glad that point's over with. Um, finally, fourth of this, this first section, peacemaking is deeply countercultural in a world that is bent on violence. It is hard, again, to grasp just how radical these words would have been in the first century. When he gave this sermon, Rome enjoyed an era of relative peace, but it was an armed peace. Rome was well-equipped to utterly crush and destroy any challenge to its power through the most humiliating and painful death imaginable. During the Third Servile War uh, in the previous century, 6,000 were crucified along the Appian Way. For the Jews, however, in this relative era of peace, the first century was one of their most violent they were longing for the return of the Messiah, who, according to Isaiah, would finally bring peace like a river, but also through condemning and pouring out his wrath on the enemy. Certainly, Rome is that enemy. In the meantime, however, there were social bandits, messianic pretenders, false prophets preaching revolution, and knife-wielding gangs known as Sicarii, who violently opposed Roman occupation. The Sicarii would blend in with the crowds in broad daylight, stab their victims, and then disappear. After Jonathan the high priest was assassinated this way in 50 AD, they went on to kill members of both the Roman and Jewish aristocracy on a daily basis, in broad daylight. This would eventually lead to the zealot party that formed around 50 or 60. And Rome responded in kind by crushing and flattening Jerusalem in AD 70. And yet, here is Jesus preaching peace and reconciliation. How strange and irrelevant this message must have sounded to those who were ready to take the kingdom by force. And that is our temptation too. To establish and rule our own little kingdoms by force. We are nearly constantly tempted to violence, whether literally or metaphorically. Some of us wage wars by trading verbal barbs in broad daylight, like the Sicarii, at church even, to inflict on our supposed enemies the pain we feel in our own souls. Some of us might harbor violence internally by reliving a difficult conversation or an argument that we felt we lost thinking of what we could have or should have said that would have inflicted more pain or offered a more stinging comeback. Whether it's a coworker who's taken credit for your hard work, an ex-husband or ex-wife who's making your life difficult, or a child who no longer trusts you. Or potentially when you're confronted with the person who killed most of your family. Which brings us to Concilde's story 
and the difference that Christ makes. But in order to tell Concilde's story, we need to tell the story of Denise Uimana. And here, if I'm going to share some things now that are not appropriate for young ears, and I should have warned people in the first service. So if that applies to you, uh, just uh, be warned. In her book, From Red Earth, Uimana gives an example of what peacemaking looks like in the wake of the Rwandan genocide that took place 25 years ago this year. Uh, as some of us are old enough to remember where we were when the planes struck the Twin Towers, uh, Uimana says most Rwandans will remember where they were on April 7, 1994 when President Habayamara's plane was shot down because this singular event would lead to the genocide, um, lighting the embers of hatred and distrust between Hutus and Tutsis that had been uh, smoldering since the mid-1800s. She puts this into perspective for us by noting that while 3,000 Americans died on or around 9-11, Rwanda lost three times that number per day for over a hundred days. Somewhere around a million men, women, and children. Where neighbor turned against neighbor, co-worker betrayed co-worker, and pastor betrayed congregations. No one could be trusted. And Uimana, in her book, will say, I was one of the fortunate ones, although it took a long time for her to realize that. Her family had survived intact with the exception of her husband, Charles, uh, and she knows not how or where he perished. Uimana watched as her cousin was hacked down by militia members. Before, uh, he was asked to give up his watch and his shirt and his fingers were trembling so violently, he almost couldn't do it. And she would struggle with anger and grief and guilt for years. Oh Lord, where are you? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you look at how dogs are feeding on bodies in the streets? She suffered from stomach issues for over a decade. She grieved that her sons had witnessed murder. She grieved over the damage done to an entire generation. Over 90% of Rwanda's children had witnessed killing. Tutsi children paralyzed by fear, Hutu children burdened with guilt and confusion, scores of survivors who could only be described as the walking dead innumerable families without fathers, and an untold number of bereft mothers infected with HIV. Her hatred reached the boiling point when she encountered a woman outside her house wearing the dress that she once owned with the fabric that her husband helped her pick out. And in her rage to God, she heard God say, Give these people a chance to know who I am so they can repent, because I am God of all people. 
God reminded her that she was spared on account of his grace and that she should forgive her pastor who betrayed the Tutsi and the killers who took her loved ones. And she sensed that God was giving her a call to the widows of Rwanda, both Hutu and Tutsi. And though this journey would take well over a decade, she knew she was making progress when uh, at the end of a church service and the passing of the peace, she turned to her right to see the son of one of the brazen killers. And, and uh, the mother who had looted her home and filled it with her own furniture. Extending her hand, she was able to wish this man peace. She also sensed that God was calling her to her mother-in-law, Consolatia, in her village in Kigali. Consolatia had lost her husband, a daughter, and seven of her eight sons in the genocide. And she sat in stunned silence as her mother-in-law and other women began to recall the atrocities. How the mayor had summoned the men of the village to a peace meeting and then dismissed the Hutus, locked the doors, soaked it with gasoline, and set it alight. Two men, farmers, were the only survivors of that village because they didn't make it to the meeting. She spoke about how the militia came to her compound singing their extermination songs, why they killed women and children, often with their mothers being forced to watch. One young boy, thinking he was being punished, promised not to wet his bed anymore, thinking that the soldiers were there to punish him. And those were his last words. And Uwimana would eventually join others who were ministering to Tutsi and to Hutu survivors through an organization called Solus Ministries. And every time she shared her story, she found other women were who attracted to her spirit of forgiveness, and the hope that she placed in Jesus. She was able to pray and read scripture with these women who had isolated themselves and been medicating their pain with banana beer and drugs. She was beginning to speak peace. Before long, the group was named Shalom Ministries, where women were being encouraged to forgive their killers because in her words, that is what God requires. One woman said, since Jesus is the center of our work, we call ourselves peacemaker women. Which brings us finally to Conceal Day. In 2015, Uimana returned to her husband's village to commemorate the 100 days of genocide. And she was very apprehensive as she was supposed to address 500 women. And when she was at this village, a decade, a decade or so ago, the pain was so raw and unimaginable that she sensed that this was not the time to broach the subject of peacemaking and forgiving. But now she sensed it was the time, especially after Conceal Day had read a passage from Isaiah 61, speaking of binding up the brokenhearted and proclaiming freedom to the captives. Conceal Day was able to share her story 
uh, of April 9th and how a young neighbor boy, Emmanuel, had killed her husband and her five children. But concealed, they had been helped by the Shalom Ministries, which means well of peace. Ereba Shalom hosts meetings where Hutus and Tutsis get to sit together and make peace. And she shared the story of how she was able to forgive Emmanuel. Emmanuel uh, was convicted of his crimes. He admitted in court he was racked with guilt. And upon being released from prison, uh, he attempted to go to her village to seek forgiveness. And the village found out about it and wouldn't let him do it, wouldn't let him in. The next day, however, he snuck in early and appeared at her door where she forgave him, citing the power of the gospel. He recalled how he had been incited to kill from, um, from his leaders, but acknowledging his full guilt. Haunted by the screams of dying children, he knew he needed forgiveness. Conceal day, he will say, has become like a mother to me. She gives him advice and he helps out with repairs around the house. She says, he comes anytime I ask to replace a window or mend the roof. If my cow has problems, I call him and he knows that he's always welcome to share a meal at my house. A former killer sharing a meal with the bereaved. Concilde says, he is my son. And Ereba Shalom, the well of peace, is my joy. It is this kind of peacemaking that makes us sons and daughters of God, which is just a way of saying, uh, this is the way we display God's very character. And, and the point of this story is not to remind us that other people have it far worse than we do, yet they've managed to make peace. It's not to make us feel angry or guilty, or rather guilty for being angry at our coworker, right, for stealing our lunch out of the break room fridge. But if we talk about being peacemakers without looking to Christ, who is our peace, then this entire sermon is nothing but a huge burden. For the ultimate basis of our peacemaking is found at the cross, where Christ has first made peace with us, suffering violence at our hands. We were God's enemies. We were the ones to carry out violence against others by nursing grudges, by, ang uh, by entertaining angry thoughts. We are the ones who are guilty of murder when we hate and of genocide when our disdain spreads to any particular tribe or race. We are the ones who have made ourselves enemies of God by making enemies of our neighbors. And yet Christ has humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, suffering at the hands of his own creation. We can only make peace with others because Christ has first made peace with us. 
as Paul writes in Colossians, for him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Umiwana understands this and expresses this reality better than most theologians. She says, in the West, I've met people who cannot grasp why Jesus had to die. Couldn't God have pardoned humankind without that torture? But in Rwanda, where we saw evil unmasked, it makes all the difference to know that God's own son has been there too. God has made peace, and he humbled and crushed his son on the cross to do it at our hands. This serves as the Christian foundation for all peacemaking. For we have never met another individual for whom Christ has not died. Christ is the embodiment of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons and daughters of God. They will be called what they already are in Christ.